Hello, be beautiful. Welcome back to another episode of It's Time to Be You, the podcast that helps people pleasers take control and finally put themselves first. I'm your host, Ariel Von Bretter, a certified life coach and recovering people pleaser here to guide you on your journey. And today we're going to talk about imposter syndrome. And I'm so glad that I've gotten to come back to this conversation because recently I dealt with some serious imposter syndrome. An opportunity came my way, and it was really hard for me to believe that I was good enough for this opportunity, which is total BS considering it was offered to me. So obviously I was good enough for it. But the situation really showed me that I have some things to work on. So coming back to this episode was perfect timing. Sometimes we have trouble seeing what other people see in us, and that can keep us stuck and playing small. And so if you are ready to stop dealing with this imposter syndrome, then this episode is for you. Today, we are joined by Cheryl Anjanette, an imposter syndrome expert and author of the best-selling book, The Imposter Lies Within, Silence Your Inner Critic, Tame Your Fear, Unleash Your Badassery. Cheryl helps us to unpack what imposter syndrome is, how it shows up, where it comes from, and most importantly, how we can stop feeling like an imposter. This episode is packed with information to see imposter syndrome differently and to remind you that you are good enough. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. To get started, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are? Sure, absolutely. I come from close to 30 years in the business world and been an entrepreneur three times. I was in the C-suite for a couple of very large organizations. So I've done the corporate thing, you know, and you don't get to the C-suite, you don't get to the executive level without having to be a beginner and all the different you know, steps along the way. So I really have been around the block when it comes to the business world. But what I loved was the personal development side of that. I've loved building high-performing teams. I've loved mentoring, especially mentoring other women, just really something that really got me excited. And so I did the deep dive into the healing arts. I became an integrative hypnotherapist, which simply means that I've I've studied and I practice multiple modalities of hypnotherapy. I'm an NLP master. I have a clinical certification in stress, anxiety, and emotional regulation. And then I have an advanced certification in cognitive behavioral neurosciences. All that to say, I like to have a nice wide tool belt. I like to be able to really help people in a lot of different ways, depending on where they're at. Yeah. I mean, yes, you definitely have quite the experience and all the tools to help people. So I'm just so excited to learn from you today. And today we're really going to focus on imposter syndrome. (laughs) And so just to start off with that, will you just tell us like what, I think we've all heard the term imposter syndrome, but tell us a little bit more about like what it actually is and means to you. Yeah. Yeah. So imposter syndrome is a psychological pattern where someone feels like they're not good enough or worthy or deserving in spite of their accomplishments. So, you know, the emphasis is on the word pattern because this is a pattern. Our beliefs become patterned, our thoughts, our self-talk become patterned, not just behaviors and actions, right? And then also, despite evidence to the contrary, we still feel like we're not good enough. So it's not logical. Right? right. It's counterintuitive. It's this disconnect. So 
there's that, I know, I know, I know, I know I have the degree. I know I have the certification. I know that I've done this a gazillion times, (laughs) but I still feel, I still feel like I'm not good enough. I still feel like someone's going to figure out I'm not as good as they think I am. I'm going to be exposed at any moment, which is where the name comes from, imposter. It doesn't mean that you're really an imposter. It doesn't mean that other people think you're an imposter. It's like, we feel like we're the imposter. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so like, I love that you say, despite that we have the evidence that we are capable of these things. So like, why is there that disconnect? Why do we not see our accomplishments and understand like we are capable and enough? Right. So isn't that the million dollar question? (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's why I wrote my book. So I wrote a book. It's out now. The imposter lies within. Silence your inner critic, team your fear, unleash your badassery. So that's the book, The Imposter Lies Within. And that's really why I wrote this book, because I went through this. I have this whole framework of seven archetypes to really understand how it's showing up. And I have this holistic approach going from the inside out and the outside in to overcoming it because the question of why, where does it come from? It's subversive. It's confusing. We're sabotaging the very things we want, right? It's riddled with self-sabotage. You know, we don't raise our hand. We play small. We say yes, even when we don't want to. The people pleaser. (laughs) Way to call us out. (laughs) Da, da, da. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, why do we do these things? Why do we quit? Yeah. You know, we finally do take advantage of the opportunity. Then we kind of explain our way out of having to follow through or we procrastinate or we do all these things. So that's the question. And the answer is that it's a little different for everyone because we're all unique. Mm -hmm. But what is very common is that it usually starts early in those early imprint years. It usually goes back to our childhood. Okay. The why, right? It's like the root. If you think about root cause, Mm -hmm. like I would say, if you had a nail in your foot, Would you take aspirin or some kind of pain relief? Probably, right? It hurts. Yeah. Right? If it got infected, would you take an antibiotic? Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. That might take care of the infection for a while. Right. But what about the nail? (laughs) Right? You got to pull the nail out. Yeah. Right? (laughs) You can't just keep taking aspirin and putting band-aids on and covering it up and looking the other way. Right. So the nail is there. And when you pull the nail out, when you get the root out of the diseased tree or whatever you want to look, think of it as, yeah, pull the root out. The pain doesn't go away immediately, but now you have a chance to heal. Mm-hmm. You're never really going to heal unless you get to the root. And yeah. so when you do the inside out work, I call it the inside out and the outside in. When you do the inner work, you get to the root cause, mm-hmm. which is scary for some people. You know, right? If you've had trauma or drama in your life, big T or little T, right? It can be scary if you've kind of suppressed the emotions for a long time, years and years, maybe even decades. It can be a little scary if you've really had the trauma you don't want to revisit, right? Right. You're doing everything you can not to go there. Exactly. But the problem is that by ignoring it, by resisting it, by looking away, it doesn't go away. It stays suppressed and it comes out in other ways. It's just delayed or it's coming out in ways that are maladaptive, like it hurts our physical or our emotional well-being, our mental health. It comes out maybe as the outer child. You hear about the wounded inner child. It comes out as the outer child. 
you know, kind of stomping their foot or doing things like leaving a relationship or, you know, saying things they just, you kind of look and you go, that was childish. (laughs) Why did I just do that? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. But the, the emotions have just been suppressed for so long and they need to come out. They need to be expressed. Right. And then released or transformed and transmuted. Because you know, when we're little, mm-hmm. we really don't have the discernment muscle. We don't, we aren't saying, oh, I want to believe that or I don't want to believe that. I'm three years old, I'm four years old, I'm five years old. And something happens, I don't stop and say, should I believe that? Maybe I should believe something else. Right. No, yeah. we don't get that until much later in life. So we're like little sponges and we're just taking it in. Something happens and an experience happens. And it's not so much the experience, but it's the meaning we gave it. Yeah. The interpretation we had at that age, at that stage. Right. Like right? so much happens to us. And we, like you said, we're little sponges when we're little. And like, that's when everything, that's when we're like developing. And I know that so much of how we are today is stemmed from our childhood. And that's, I guess I never thought about that when it comes to like thinking about imposter syndrome that it goes all the way back to the childhood, just like other things that we're trying to overcome and fix. And Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And really imposter syndrome, when you take care of this, when you do the deep dive and it's not the only part of this, we need to do the outer work too. So I'll explain that in a moment. But when you do this work, when you do the inner dive and you look at those early beliefs. So again, let me just go back. It's not the experience itself. Right. But the meaning we gave it, the interpretation that we had at that age mm-hmm. and at that stage with our own little personalities, which are all different. Right. Yeah. Right. And then something happens. And I think, ooh, I'm little. I fall down. Ooh, I'm not very good. Ooh, I'm not good enough. Ooh, I can't do that. Ooh, I, I'm not good enough. And then our minds are wired to make ourselves right. So we look for evidence and something else happens. Mm. And so go, ooh, there it is again. You see, I'm really not good enough. Ooh, there it is again. Ooh, you see, I'm not lovable. Ooh, there you go. Oh, everybody wants to leave me. They're abandoning me. I'm not lovable. Right. And then we create that and then we have years of that. Right. And so sometimes things happen that are really difficult, even abusive, right? Yeah. Traumatic. And sometimes they're really not, if you look at it through an adult lens, but the child still felt like they were unlovable or not good enough. Right. You know, you have a parent that loves you, but is really critical. Maybe they were criticized a lot. And so they're trying to, they're a little controlling or a lot controlling or a little critical or a lot critical. Yeah. And the child never stops loving the parent. The child just stops loving themselves. Ooh. I feel like that was like a big thing. And I think a lot of people can relate to a relationship like that. And yeah, it's so interesting because like when we have these relationships, especially like with our parents or someone close to us, we still see that person as okay. And we probably want to seek approval from them and keep trying to like earn their love because we love them, want them. But then it is so it takes away from us and without even realizing it, you know, we're not loving ourselves enough. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And, but it's a little mind. It's a tiny human, right? If you're a parent, you know this, you know, you have your little kids. So there's no blame. There's no guilt. It just is. It's the things that happen. 
good people, not meaning to hurt someone, maybe just behaving in ways that their parents behaved with them, or responding, not realizing. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's really bad behavior. Sometimes it's really, truly abusive. Right. So there's a whole range, you know, but I was brought up by very loving parents, but dad had a temper. He was so loving and so generous. So I even hate to say it because, you know, we never want to say anything bad about the people we love and it sounds like it's bad, but it just is. Right. He wasn't a bad person. He just, you know, people have tempers. They get angry about something. His way of dealing with it was to leave, get in the car and take a drive and blow off steam. That's not a bad thing to do. I mean, I'd rather he leave and blow off steam and take a drive than hit a wall or hit a person or do something else, right? Right, yeah. Not bad. People get angry. But as a small child, I witnessed my father many times. I saw him angry. He wasn't angry with me. He was angry maybe with my mother or something that happened or whatever. Who knows? I saw him get angry. I saw him leave. I hear the door slam. I hear the car engine start. I hear the car driving away all these triggering things, right? And I never realized that I had abandonment issues. Mm. If you had asked me if I had abandonment issues, I'd say, no, me, my parents are together. My parents got divorced. They did get divorced, but it wasn't until I was in my early twenties. We had a loving household. We all sat around and had dinner together. I would tell you the stories that my conscious mind understands, but it wasn't until I went into hypnotherapy and I did the deep dive that I realized that these were really triggers and that all my people-pleasing behavior probably were rooted there in the abandonment issues. You know, people-pleasing, we want to talk about how it shows up, but to really get past it, we also have to know where it came from. Yeah. And people-pleaser is one of the seven archetypes, by the way, that I talk about in my book. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. I'm curious. Well, before, you know, I just want to say like, that's just a great example that you give about your father, because I actually had another conversation with someone talking about trauma. And we were talking about the fact that a lot of us, like our childhood was good. Like I didn't experience trauma, but like that trauma can, she likes to call it like brain indigestion. Like, and especially when you're little and you only have, but so much information when things happen, it processes it, processes it the best way that it can. And then like, especially like as a parent, like you're doing things the best way you know how thinking like, you know, with your dad, like I'm going to like leave the situation, but his intention wasn't to like abandon you or anything, but that's just kind of how your brain was able to perceive it. But it's just so interesting how, you know, we're always just doing the best that we can, but things still happen and that's okay. But then like learning how it affects us and what we can do for it, I think is just so important. So I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then the second part of it, which is probably something you work with a lot, is repatterning our habits, the beliefs, the thoughts, the self-talk, and then the behaviors. So people-pleasing as an example, because we were talking about that earlier, is one where the people-pleaser tends to put themselves last in their own life, right? (laughs) They subjugate their needs to the needs of everyone else. They have trouble setting boundaries. They feel like they need to say yes. And they do, even when they don't want to. Or they say yes when they want to. They really don't have the time or the resources to. Mm -hmm. So those are the behaviors. But that's not causation, right? That's correlation. 
What's the causation? The causation could be fear of abandonment. Do I belong? Are people going to like me? Are people going to want me to be around if I don't say yes to everything, right? So a lot of that is what we were just talking about, getting to the root of that and transmuting and transforming. But then there are the behaviors and the thoughts and the self-talk that have become patterns. So now we have to practice. We have to practice saying no. We practice saying no and setting boundaries when the stakes aren't high because we want the neurons. We want these neural pathways in our brain to connect. You know, habits are formed in the brain when neurons connect over time and it happens often enough that they create patterns. Yeah. And the mind looks for the path of least resistance. So if something's familiar and it's been done over and over in time and you have what's called a neural pathway that's been created, we're going to want to keep going to that. That's the path that's familiar. Right. And the mind equates familiarity with safety and comfort. So now we're going there because our mind also thinks we're safe and we're comfortable and that's the best way to go, even when it's not, right? Counterintuitive. So here we are, we kind of get it now. Okay. I know where that stemmed from. I realized dad was just blowing off steam. He wasn't abandoning us. He wasn't abandoning me. I'm okay. I'm good enough. I matter. I'm lovable. Dad wasn't leaving me. Dad wasn't even mad at me. Right. And I got that. And I got that inside. My little girl got that. Not just me, the adult, but my little girl got that. But now I've got to change my patterns. Yeah. So now I've got to practice. I've got to practice setting boundaries. I've got to practice saying no. I've got to practice standing up for myself mm-hmm. or asking for my worth or letting things go if I'm a perfectionist, like allowing myself to make mistakes and not seeing every flaw and just letting it go and saying, I'm going to let it go at 80% and be okay with it. We have to practice that because it's going to be really uncomfortable Yeah, until it's comfortable. I love that you use the word practice and just because it's like you have to keep doing it. And like you said, like start small. And because I think sometimes we think we have to do something like make a big change, but it's like when you just start small and, you know, keep doing that, that you can build those neural pathways to like make that your new comfortable path rather than trying to go something that's like super resistant or super different. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly it. So you start small, you do it when the stakes are low. You just, with people pleasing, each one of these is a little different. I'll tell you about the seven archetypes in a moment, but yeah, you know, with people pleasing, one of the things that happens, one of the dynamics is that we've also trained the people around us. Yeah. <laughs> to expect us to be people pleasers. They expect us to say yes, because that's what we've always done. And right. so when we're first setting boundaries, there's a dynamic. So first we're uncomfortable because we're kind of testing out setting boundaries, mm-hmm. but then we're going to get pushback as well right. from the people that have expect us to say yes. Exactly. Right. So we're going to get that pushback and that's where you just have to be very clear, hold your ground. Don't worry about losing just let it go. Just assume the best. And if someone goes away, if they go away and they stay away, they were not meant to be in your life. And that's okay. Right. Yeah. And if they go away and they're just testing you, they'll come back because you know how kids will test you. Kids will test parents, but you know what? Grownups test too. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're all kind of like big kids. Right. <laughs> like yeah. the boyfriends will test or the husbands or the girlfriends or the bosses or the managers. Everybody's going to test you and you just hold firm and you're pleasant. 
doesn't need to be defiant or rebellious. That's the outer child that feels defiant and rebellious because they've had been suppressing it so much. We just do it like adults. Yeah. The composure was, you know, just a level of calm demeanor and confidence of, let me give you a role play, for example. Let's say you're in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Let's say someone's in the workplace and their manager just keeps piling on and piling on. And I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Where's this? Where's that? You really, you know, you're getting burned out, right? It's overwhelmed. But you want to say yes. You want to say yes. And you always say yes. So what you can start to do is really, first of all, organize your list and your time. How long do things take you? Where are you at in order to do a good job? And then when your boss gives you that next thing, you say, when do you need this by? Mm -hmm. Okay. If I'm going to get this to you by this time, here are the other things I'm working on. Where does this go in the priority scale? What else should I take off of my list so I can add this to my list? Now, that's a very professional way to handle it, isn't it? If I'm someone's boss, you know, and at one point I had 85 people report to me. So I've been someone's boss (laughs) a lot, but you know what? I respect that. So if somebody comes to me and someone's working for me, Mm -hmm. I'll often say, whoa, 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 you're overdoing it. You're going to get burnt out. You need to just stop putting so much pressure on yourself. Let me know when you can get this to me because I'm not in control of your workload. I don't know how long, I have an idea, but I don't really know how long things take you. So you just need to tell me and let me know if you're on track for it. That's what a good boss will do. Not everyone's a good boss, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but that's where you just have to be very, very clear and very professional with people. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. And you're right. I mean, someone that has a boss or is working with someone, they don't always know how long something actually takes or realize like everything that's on that person's plate. And if that person just keeps saying yes, the boss probably thinks like, oh, they're, they've got time and capability and I'll just keep giving it to them because they, they always say yes. But if you start actually letting them know, no, this is how long it's taking me and I need to find out what our priorities are so I can actually do that. Like then I think it's like creating more awareness to help set those boundaries. And so I'm curious because I know also a lot of my listeners their people pleasing comes from like their like family relationships and their family obligations. So do you have another like role playing example of someone who, you know, is dealing with like family that (laughs) they need to set some boundaries with? Yeah. Same concept, right? It's like start small when the stakes aren't high. You know, we're all going to this movie. Come on, we're going you know what? I've got a paper to finish or I've got a project or I'm just not really feeling like it. I'm going to take a pass this time. And maybe they're pushing you. Do something that's low stakes. Get them to get used to you saying no and sticking to it. And then when they start to ask you for things like, you know, I had a client whose family, I mean, she was just the savior for the family. She was taking care of everyone, paying for everything disproportionately. Yeah. You know, and she had to learn to say no to her sister and her mother, who she really cared about. And so it was more a matter of kind of retraining them and teaching them that they need to start being responsible for themselves and that it was really unfair. Yeah. Unfair in her life that she needed to take care of them. She was at a point in her life where she needed to date and, you know, start looking at getting married and start looking at the things, which were the things that she wanted in her life. So 
I think it's starting small, starting when the stakes are low. And then with family, there's a lot of emotion and history attached. So sometimes it's a little more difficult to separate your emotions. So I suggest you get yourself in a state of readiness, meaning do some deep breathing. Just decide you're not going to be reactive. Just decide you're going to maintain your calm and be this person that shows up that's maybe a little different than the person they know and that you're going to be consistent. The biggest part of this is consistency. Yeah. Right? So for example, if a parent were to tell a child, if you do that, you're going to have a timeout and then the child does it and you don't give them the timeout, what happens? The child knows. Yeah, Yeah. there's no consequence. Or you do it sometimes, (laughs) you don't do it other times. So people really actually like to know where they stand. Right, yeah. When you're consistent and you're retraining yourself and you're retraining the people around you, just let them know, hey, you know what? It's not that I don't want to do this for you, but I really don't have time. And so I'm going to have to say no. And it's going to help me a lot if you can just accept my no, but if you want, we can talk about this more. It's still going to end up at the same place. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to do this. So if you want to banter about it, we can do that. Something might come up where they throw you off and they can start going down another path. You have to say, look, let's just talk about what's in front of us. You know, we don't need to bring up other things. I think we're getting off topic. You're asking me if I can do X, Y, Z. I told you I'm not going to be able to, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sorry. I apologize, but I'm not going to be able to. And that's really what we're talking about. We don't need to go off in other directions, you know, and you set your boundaries. You just set your boundaries. I mean, I've had to set boundaries with family where I said, I'm not going to be able to speak with you if you raise your voice. I'm not going to be able to speak with you if you sling insults. I'm not going to call you anymore if you hang up on me. You see, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. If you do this behavior, let me be very clear. I'm not going to do this. So this is the way you interact with me if you would like me to be in your life. So I've had to do that with my ex-husband. I have had to do that with a sibling. I've had to do that. Yeah. I get it. I completely get it. I mean, and it just, it sounds really powerful to, you know, have a boundary and then set it and speak it out loud when like you're very clear of like, if this happens, I'm not going to do this. And I mean, just it's a clear cut boundary. And then the fact that you're sticking with it and holding your grounds, I think that is a big part of it, you know, because like you said, if like with a little kid, if you like put them in timeout or say you're going to put them in timeout and then don't like, they're just going to be like, well, whatever, like I'm going to get away with it. <laughs> exactly. I think that's very real, you know, for people to relate to and kind of just know like they've got to hold firm to that. And and it's not only like retraining yourself, but retraining the people around you. I really like thinking about it like that. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And so what are the other archetypes then? Right. So there are seven. Yeah. So, and they're all in my book. So if you grab the book, The Imposter Lies Within, I kind of go through all of them. Okay. Awesome. And the characters and traits and behaviors, but there's the perfectionist and there are three types of perfectionism that are maladaptive. There's actually one type that's adaptive, that's healthy, but you know, I don't even like to call it perfectionism because- Generally speaking, perfectionism is maladaptive. It's unhealthy. Yeah. So there's the self-critical perfectionist, 
the other critical perfectionist and the social perfectionist. And you can be all three, by the way. Yeah. Critical, <laughs> we're really hard on ourselves. We see every flaw. You know, we have trouble celebrating our success. You know, we tend to ruminate a lot, those thought loops in our head. And we worry incessantly about the little mistake that was on the slide or the one thing I said wrong, or what did they think? There's a lot of judgment in there. The other oriented perfectionist, we tend to put our perfectionism on other people. We just really are critical, critical of others and expecting, Mm. you know, very high, high standards, high standards by themselves aren't bad. But when we're so critical and judgmental and we make it really hard, it can be really hard on other people, expecting perfectionism from them. And then social perfectionism, which many people in the family dynamics may have gone through this or in cultural dynamics, where we're in a family or a system, or we come from a culture, or we're in a certain type of profession, like a doctor, a lawyer, a architect, an engineer that require a lot of precision, Mm -hmm. where there's just a high level of perfectionism that's expected. Right. Yeah. It's like so much to live up to. Yeah. And so the three types of perfection. So perfectionist, we talked about the people pleaser. So that's the second archetype. There's also the master that feels like they need just one more degree or certification to be quote unquote good enough. (laughs) Yeah. I'll do that after I get this other cert. Maybe I need this. Right. (laughs) Always comparing ourselves to everyone else. There's the lone ranger. The lone ranger has trouble delegating. They feel like they need to do everything alone. And a lot of that is that they they feel like if they ask for help, somebody's mm-hmm. going to see that they weren't good enough to do it, mm, right? Yeah. Now, if you're a perfectionist and you're a lone ranger, some of that lone ranger behavior can come from no one can do it as well as I can do it, right? right so I might yeah. as well just do it alone. Yes. There is the superhero that really overcompensates. They just feel like they need to do twice as much or three times as much as everyone else, just to get to the starting gate, just to be good enough. Mm -hmm. And some of that is from some external pressure. You know, as women, we're expected to do so much more just to kind of be at the starting gate, you know? And if you have like the double whammy or the triple whammy, if you are a minority, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're a woman of color, or if you were an immigrant and a woman, or if you are differently abled, you know, perhaps, and you are female and you can have two or three of these things up against you. And you can just feel like you need to do so much more just to be kind of at the starting gate. Right. That's very painful. So it's the combination of how we feel inside and there's external pressure a lot of times. Then there is the savior. So the savior, and this is a dynamic that often plays with the people pleaser. And you see this a lot in codependent relationships. Yeah. Right. So we see this a lot in codependent relationships are not just personal relationships. They're not just love relationships. They can be in family dynamics. They can be in friend dynamics, and they can certainly be in the workplace. We can have codependent relationships in the workplace. The savior feels like they just need to come in and save the day. They're Mm -hmm. the one to save everyone else. Someone needs something. I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to save them. I may even look for situations or create chaos and situations so I can swoop in and save the day. Yeah. Why? Because that gives me validation that I'm good enough. Now, savior may have come from early child or even mid or some kind of experience in their life, but usually early where 
maybe they felt unsafe. Let me just give you an example. Someone felt really unsafe and there was nobody there to save them. And they were just always looking for someone to come in and save. So they become the savior. Right. Like for others. Or they did have someone, maybe they felt really unsafe and they were in a difficult situation and somebody came in and they made it all right. Grandma or an uncle or a friend or a teacher or somebody, somebody was that savior. And so they had that model behavior. It's like, I want to be that savior for everyone else. Right. right? Yeah. In my case, my dad was codependent. He was always out there saving everyone. Mm, yeah. <laughs> he was just like a big Santa Claus. I mean, he just wanted to do everything. So he's a beautiful person. Yeah. There's a lot of model behavior, right? And so I would do that. I mean, I would just like, I've got to be the one to save everyone. I've got to write every check. I don't have the money, but I've got to write the check. You know? right. <laughs> it was kind of silly. It didn't make any sense. So those are six. There's one more. Mm-hmm. It's the prodigy. And the prodigy is interesting. This is one a lot of people haven't heard of, but you know how we all have our zones of genius. We have those things that we're really good at. Maybe we're really good yeah. artists or maybe we're really good at meeting people. We have just really great social interaction skills, or maybe we're really good at math or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Maybe we're just really funny. Whatever that thing is, we all have it. Maybe we do nails really well. We just, or, you know, we, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like whatever it is, like we all have our zone of genius, right? right. Or zones. But the prodigy is that person that wants to go from zero to hero or beginner to mastery immediately. They feel like they need to master whatever it is to even get in the game. Yeah. Because that in-between place where they're learning, Mm -hmm. it's called the competency staircase. You kind of learn something, you take a few steps, you slip back, you maybe fall down, then you practice, you learn more, you get better. Yeah. And then eventually you become perhaps you gain a certain level of mastery. Maybe you get really good at that or you become an expert. Right. So that area, there's so much room to fall back, to slip, Mm -hmm. to have a missed take. I never say mistake. I would say missed take. I like that. (laughs) Iterate to great, right? So there's so much room for that of slipping back. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're going to be found out it's not good enough. It all goes back to those early feelings of I'm not good enough. Right. Right. So a prodigy, you know, I had all seven of these guys. So if you're listening and you're saying, oh my <laughs> yeah, God, I feel like I'm all a cocktail of, them. of all those. <laughs> I, I mean, a lot of this came out of my own experience and I got myself past imposter syndrome. And yeah. so, yeah, I was all of them, all of them, all of them. So painful. But what I did is I finally said enough. I decided I wasn't going to believe people that said everyone has it or you just have to live with it, or it will always come up. I thought, yeah, you know what? No, 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 no. There's got to be a better way. I don't accept that. Right. You know, because if we accept something, then that will become our reality, mm-hmm. right? So if you yeah. leave yourself no room, if you say, well, I just have to live with this, then that's what you will get. Exactly. But if you open the door to possibility and you yeah. say, you know what? I think it's possible. Even if you open it up for a sliver, I'm just going to let a little bit of light in. I'm going to say, maybe it's possible that I can get past this. Maybe it's possible I don't have to live with this anxiety or ruminating thoughts. Maybe it's possible that one day I'll set boundaries easily and I'll just realize that people don't go away. In fact, they respect me more. Maybe one day I'm not going to worry so much about perfectionism. I'm going to laugh at when I make a mistake. Maybe one day 
I'm going to not worry about falling down or not being good enough because I just know I am good enough. Right. You know? So if you just open the door to possibility, then possibility can become probability. Yeah. Then you can get there. You can get to the end. Yeah. I mean, I just, I really like that because thinking about it with imposter syndrome being such a thing, I think a lot of us have just felt like, oh, it's something that people deal with, but you just kind of have to get over it rather than deal with it. And I, so I'm really glad we're having this conversation and that you have written this book to help people actually like overcome it. But I'm curious to know of like, once you kind of go through this, does a version of imposter syndrome still show up? It's a good question because no matter how many times I explain this, yeah, people will still say, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. And then, but it's going to still come up, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what we've believed for so long. Right. It's, it's almost like that's the first belief you have to change. And there's a lot of belief clearing and swapping, changing yeah. the beliefs. It's like, I believe I'm not good enough. Well, what would you like to believe? Well, I'd like to believe I am good enough. Okay, that's a start. Now we can clear, we can figure out where that came from, clear it, mm-hmm. and let's put the new belief in and then get it to really set, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So there's a belief that it's always going to come up, but let me give you a vision. Let me yeah. show you what, why it's possible to overcome it, yeah. why it's possible to do it in a way where it doesn't come back. Yes. So- There's a concept I want you to become very familiar with. It's called the healthy zone. It's a concept I came up with. So kind of a term I've coined. Yeah. It's called the healthy zone. And in this healthy zone, think of it like a circle, if you want, in the middle, like a target, almost a big circle. Mm -hmm. And in this circle, almost every emotion, almost virtually every behavior, virtually, is healthy, meaning it's adaptive. We're human beings. Yeah, We're meant to have fear. Fear is wired into us. Imagine life with no fear. That's just Mm. a saying. There is no such thing as no fear. Right. (laughs) And there's no such thing as fearless. Right, yeah. Less fear, maybe. Less fear. But fear is wired into us, and we don't want fear to go away because fear protects us. Mm -hmm. If we had no fear, we'd get hurt. Right, yeah. We'd run into dangerous situations. It wouldn't be positive. And there are a lot of good things that happen when we have the fear response. We're not meant to stay in it. Mm-hmm. It's not meant to be chronic. But when we have the fear response, we get this adrenaline rush and we get this cocktail of, it's kind of a stress cocktail actually, but <laughs> you know, some different things that happen that actually give us a rush. And if we use it in the way it's meant to be used, if there's an actual threat, we can get ourselves out of that threat. Right, yeah. You know, if exactly. something happens and you know, your baby's about to go into the ocean. You want that fear response. Oh my God, my baby, you're going to grab them before they go into the ocean or fall in the pool or whatever that thing is. Right. But then you settle down, you relax, and then that goes away. The problem is we get into chronic fear mm-hmm. and that's maladaptive. We're afraid of everything. And we're jumping in that cocktail that of stress hormones and adrenaline and all this stuff. It just keeps flooding our brains and our bodies, and that's not good. Right. So in the healthy zone, fear is a good thing. We don't want it to go away. Doubt. Mm-hmm. Doubt is our discernment muscle. Can you right. imagine life with no doubt? Yeah. You believe every Tom, Dick, or Harry, right? You believe everyone, <laughs> right? You could take in. That was where the real imposter would get you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you want doubt. 
in the healthy zone. You want it in an adaptive way. It's like, okay, doubt, come in, do your thing. Mm -hmm. Tell me what I need to look at. Let's poke a few holes. Let's just make sure I've looked at everything before I make that decision. And then go away. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So comparison. How would we know who we are if we don't know who we are not? How would we know light without dark or day without night? Or we walk into a room and let's say we're a new coach and we meet other people that are coaches, life coaches as an example, or Mm -hmm. what have you. Wouldn't it be great if we had some models of people that have been doing it longer? Right. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if we had models of people that were doing it differently? Right. Wouldn't it be cool if we had models of people that were doing it better so we could get better? But what do we do? We go in and we compare ourselves and we feel like we're at the low end of the stick and we're Mm -hmm. beating ourselves up because we think we're just a mess and how can we even quote unquote compete? Well, you weren't competing with them. (laughs) (laughs) The universe sent them to give you models. Right. (laughs) Right? That's such a good way to look at those things. Right. Right. Or belonging. You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need to belong. Wanting a little bit of validation, but when we crave it, when we need it, we're always just going for the validation. That's when it's all maladaptive. So when you get past imposter syndrome, here is what happens. Yeah. You're in the adaptive, healthy zone for all of these behaviors and emotions. They're Mm -hmm. energizing. They're not depleting. When something comes up that's new or shocking, that kind of throws you off like we have a big loss. Maybe it's a loss of income. Maybe it's a loss of life. Maybe it's a loss of a relationship. Maybe it's a loss of a job. Maybe it throws us to the edge of that healthy zone. Maybe it pushes us even outside of the edge. Mm -hmm. But here's what happens. We already have this deep-seated, the inner confidence, the inner knowing that we are good enough, that we are worthy, that we are deserving. We're connected. We're not wondering if we're good enough. We're just fearful and having some doubt because something new happened and it kind of dysregulated. You know, our emotions are dysregulated when we have loss, Mm -hmm. but we know how to get that regulation back. And so we kick ourselves back into the healthy zone more quickly. When we have loss, that zone actually expands for us a little bit because that zone is a little bit larger to hold grief. Mm -hmm. It becomes a little bigger because it's actually adaptive and normal to have a little dysregulation when you are grieving. And like I said, that can be loss of life, but it could also be loss of a relationship. And it doesn't just have to be a marriage. Right. You know, yeah. Some people go take it really hard when they lose a friendship mm-hmm. or they're dating somebody and they go through a breakup, even if they were the ones that instigated it. Right. Yeah. Or we move, we move across country. And even though we're where we want to be, it's new, you know, so we've had a little bit of loss, a little bit of gain there. But the idea is that it expands to hold us because it's still adaptive. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of like picture, because, you know, you said like to kind of picture a circle, but I kind of picture something that's kind of, you know, just, yeah, like adapting and moving and just, but it's a place that we can like have like a stable foundation and it might change depending on what we're going through. But I just really like all the things you said with like the fear and doubt and comparison, like, those are all things that we experience and that we are going to continue to experience, but we don't have to let it like hold us back. And I think so many of us get so stuck with the fear of those things and get caught up in those things. But with this, it sounds like, you know, it's just kind of like very flowy, like in and out of your little circle. 
Well, and sometimes we pause, but it doesn't mean we're frozen. We Mm. kind of pause. Yeah. But it means that we're working through, we're growing through what we're going through, Mm -hmm. and we're assimilating some new information. And so it's different than being frozen in fear. Yeah. When we're taking that pause. So it's not that we don't still have hard times. Life is life. Yeah. But it's more adaptive, much more adaptive. And there isn't that disconnect. You see, really, imposter syndrome is where we don't feel good enough in spite of our accomplishments. Right. That's the disconnect. We feel like we're an imposter, like we're going to be found out. That's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, we may be new at something, and it's like we start, we kind of go to the, ooh, this doesn't feel normal. I feel like an imposter. And it's like, oh, no, I'm not an imposter. I'm just new. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's a totally different thinking. I'm going to feel more comfortable pretty soon after I've worn this jacket a little bit and it's starting to feel more comfy, right? Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, you've just provided like so much information and I mean, you've helped me and I know my audience is like, see imposter syndrome in a different light. And I love that it's something that we can like actually come to the other side of and like have our healthy zone So tell us, where's the best place to get your book and connect with you? Sure. Yeah. So the book is available. I know it's available on Amazon. That's the easiest way. There's a hardback, a paperback, certainly the Kindle version. And the Audible is being recorded right now, but I would guess that by the time someone's listening to this podcast, it will be available. I'm actually recording it in my own voice. And then as far as finding me, so if you know my name, Cheryl and Jeanette, Cheryl with an S, Mm -hmm. A-N-J-A-N-E-T-T-E, Cheryl and Jeanette, you can find me everywhere. My website is CherylAnnJeanette.com. My social media is at Cheryl and Jeanette. I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find. I have a quiz. You can take the imposter syndrome quiz if you'd like. It's available on my website. And then I also have a masterclass that I usually run one or two of these a month to the five keys to eliminate imposter syndrome. And I have a journey past self-sabotage. So it's really focusing. It's just a 30-day to get rid of self-sabotage. So that's all my stuff right now. Awesome. And I'm definitely going to put all of that in the show notes so that people can easily find you and connect with you and get the book. And one of the things that I always love to ask is, How has being yourself led to your success? Oh, God, that's a great (laughs) question. You know what? I was just thinking about that. Actually, this morning, I was thinking, you know, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to do me. I do that the best. Mm -hmm. And if that's not right for someone, then that person is probably not right for me or that opportunity. And that's okay because not everyone is meant to be for you and not every opportunity is meant for you and you're not for everybody. But when you connect, the word authentic has become a bit of a buzzword. We hear it over and over and over, but Mm -hmm. it's true that when we just are who we are, it feels comfortable. It feels real. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that we're not paying attention to the world around us You know, Mm -hmm. if being us means that we're throwing around the F-bomb and we're in a situation where that may not be appropriate, (laughs) yeah, we can temper that. We don't need to stretch it and be ourselves where we're trying to shock other Mm -hmm. people or get their attention. We need to be self-honest about that, you know, radically self-honest. What am I really trying to do? But Mm -hmm. I think if we're ourselves in a way that's respectful 
and kind and understanding of others as well as ourselves, not putting ourselves last anymore, (laughs) that that is the most important thing. Yeah, I love it. And do you have a final message that you would like to leave with people? You are good enough. You are worthy. You are deserving. Your voice matters. You matter. Not only are you lovable, you are pure love. That is who you are. You come from love. You are love. And just remember that. That's who you really are. And at the end of the day, everything works out. Every storm runs out of water. The sun always comes up. It will be okay. Yeah. I love that so much. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all of your knowledge. And I mean, this is just really impactful. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's been such a pleasure and such an honor. Really, I appreciate you. Wow. So I hope that you play that last message from Cheryl on repeat whenever you feel like you're not good enough. And as you can see, imposter syndrome has been rooted in us from childhood, but we don't have to let it hold us back. We can move away from imposter syndrome and live our life in a healthy zone where we know we are good enough, we are worthy and confident. Moving away from imposter syndrome will take some work. I know I've got some work to do. So I hope that you purchase Cheryl's book, The Imposter Lies Within, Silence Your Inner Critic, Tame Your Fear, Unleash Your Badassery, to fully dive into the concepts that Cheryl discussed today. And as you're recovering from people-pleasing and imposter syndrome, there's a whole group of people ready to support you in the free It's Time to Be You Facebook group. Click on the link in the show notes to join us and share your challenges and wins as you're on this journey. It's time to stop letting your self-doubt get in the way. It's time to eliminate imposter syndrome. It's time to know that you are good enough. It's time to be you. 